Hey, everybody, we're back with the final uh, commission podcast, probably ever, ever. Well, no, oh, actually, damn. it's not true because we got these da- we, we got the uh, got these goddamn fantasy football leaguers. Yeah, they keep that, doing their that, thing that every we, year. We agreed to put up. So so there will this won't be the final. I have to figure out how to shut that down. Anti- well, you got to <laughs> bring that in National Football League to him. I can make that happen. Pretty easy. <laughs> uh, I so so this is the final one for a while until after until the week of the Super Bowl or whatever. Uh, Michael from Arlington, Virginia, in honor of his lovely and talented wife, Susanna, had one of the strangest commissions that we've received. Uh, He wanted us to discuss the hour and 20-some minutes special feature on Revenge of the Sith. That's episode uh, Star Wars Episode Mm 3. Called Within a Minute, the Mustafar Duel, Scene 158, Consisting of 25 shots, 185 frames, 910 artists, and 70,441 work hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think we had actually shut down the commission process when he... Because this this came in the form of a package containing a bunch of booze. He had a, a, a liquor selection for myself, Jim, uh, and Cecily, and some Valvini for us to enjoy during working on this project. Uh, and and honestly, the, the, the booze bribe won us over. So yeah. he agreed to take on this project. And it, the reason he's, he, he took this very unusual uh, commission is because he wanted to kind of give a a little respect and a little love for all the quote-unquote below-the-line types. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the ones essentially that you don't know their faces, the people that do the design and the modeling and the music and the sound and the construction, lighting. Catering. Catering, even they're way below the line. There's a second line that they're below, they're, but they're, they're still yeah, important, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're going to get to that here, Michael. Uh, he has a statement that he would like for us to read, and I'm going to do so. Uh, please suspend for a moment any feelings, however passionate about the Star Wars prequels. I I cannot promise to do that, but I will try. This podcast is not about Star Wars or George Lucas or the virtue of the prequels. It is for the people not named George Lucas. Although I find this bonus uh, feature for Revenge, Revenge of the Sith to be enjoyable on its own, I have an ulterior motive to encourage at least some of your listeners to watch it and to better understand the Herculean effort required to bring an idea to this screen. Now, I will say, step away from Michael's words here for a minute to say that this enti- feature on in its entirety is on YouTube. And mm-hmm. I will link it there. I don't know if it's an officially ble- blessed copy, but it's there. I'm going to link it. And if it's gone when you get it, well, you can get it on the special features of the Blu-rays. Um, so he continues, the golden age of television is often written and spoken of, but those conversations focus on the writers, directors, actors, producers, etc. And while that praise is well earned, it is incomplete. I chose this commission to celebrate all the people below the line, the gaffers, the caterers, the drivers, musicians, set designers, makeup artists, electricians, costume designers, editors, location scouts, production assistants, and all the rest. You once hosted a pair of Breaking Bad Location Scouts in your podcast, one of my favorite Bald Move episodes. It gave us a small glimpse of some of the unseen work about uh, with contracts, permits, clearances. I never imagined so much went into being a location scout. We now live among the uh, most amazing glut of tremendous television and movies. A few come to mind. The Leftovers, Breaking Bad, The Wire, Stranger Things, Westworld, Parks and Rec, Fargo, Black Mirror, Game of Thrones, Mad Men, Arrival, The Martian, Star Wars. The list goes on and on. Hey, hey. I thought we're not talking about Star Wars, man. You're baiting me. You're baiting me, Michael. Uh, They make us think. They make us feel and cringe and cry. They make us uncomfortable. They make us yearn and imagine. And they can drive us to despair and to hope. 
The hard work of people who care enough to work hard has made life richer for us all. Uh, there's credits at the end of the production should never be a signal to move or to leave or to leave or move on. Please turn off the autoplay for the next episode because credits are an important part of the movie or show. It's our opportunity to, in fact, give credit, thanks and appreciation to all those who work so hard to be unseen and unnoticed. So he asked us to raise a glass and toast to all those below the line. Thank you. Um, all right. I mean, I agree with the sentiments here is that, uh, a lot of the art, uh, especially if you enjoy really big blockbuster films, just rest on an unbelievable army of very talented artists that toil in relative obscurity uh, for very little riches. Uh, and they and without them, you would have essentially indie flicks. So if you like a Marvel film, if you like a DC film, if you like a big sci- science fiction fantasy extravaganza you really, really, really got to give it up to just just the army of people that, that make all this stuff possible. Uh, I did watch the, the, the source material, Jim. Yeah? I'm assuming you did as well. Since that's you mean the... Revenge of the Sith? No. No, no, no. Oh, within a minute? Yeah, I watched the documentary. Sure. Uh, it's, since that's the, that's the social contract of the Commission podcast, um, wh- I, 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 I kind of sat down to do this as like, oh boy, man, uh, what 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 am I going to say about this? Cause I, I haven't, I watched a lot of special features in the, pre, the episode one. Uh, by the time episode three rolled around, I was not in the mood to be watching celebratory laps of the yeah. Lucas empire collapsing. Uh, <laughs> so I hadn't seen any, this is all new information to me. And what did you think of the experience of watching it? Uh, I thought it was a really good documentary. Um, it's it's tough in this situation to really, I guess, dig in as much as I would want them to because that would take a hundred hours. Like right. I, I could watch an hour long documentary on every single one of the departments that they mentioned, mm-hmm. and some of them get as as little as like a minute worth of uh, attention in this right. documentary. Right. But um, like catering is pretty much, and people have to eat too. Yeah. Bump, bump, bada, bump, 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 bada, bump, and on to you the next one. believe how many people we have to feed. Seven hundred. <laughs> okay, sound recording. Uh, yeah, uh, sample of dual yeah. fates, and we're off. <laughs> Which I mean is kind of fair. I'm curious yeah. about the logistics of feeding that many people on a schedule as tight as they're on. Like that's interesting, and I could watch. Eh, Let's say thirty minutes on on catering. On catering, yeah, yeah, an hour on sound recording, thirty minutes on catering. I, but I read on, on, yeah, I read on Reddit last week an unethical life pro tip uh-huh. that if you want to eat for free in Burbank or any Hollywood shoot, you get a North Face jacket. Oh my God, a Motorola earpiece and a two and two way radio and wear some sunglasses and a clipboard if you really want to sell it. Uh-huh. And you can just eat you can eat high quality food for free all the time. Nice. So there there's there's your uh, catering tip of the day. Back to you, Jim. Uh, yeah. So like I said, I, I could watch this all day, and uh, I thought for what it was for the amount of time they had, it was actually really good. And I think Rick McCallum's like the perfect person to narrate this to host mm-hmm. a documentary like mm-hmm. this because he is you know the producer of star wars and he has kind of the the top level view of all this stuff right and he understands what goes into everything um and, and then when they cut into like the the people who are actually what i would call below the line you know the, the head of accounting or or the you know uh recordist the sound recordist which i didn't mm-hmm. even know was a, a term you could use mm-hmm. in the english language uh who <laughs> His name 
is Salty Brin Cat, which to me sounds like one of George Lucas's creatures. Sure, sure. And I really want to know how he got the name Salty. He has a he has an earring, so maybe it's like a pirate thing. Mm. I can see that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they cut down into those like below the line levels, and the people who are heads of those departments all get to chime in and talk about their jobs. And I thought that was super interesting. Mm-hmm. What I did is I watched this documentary and I wrote down the departments and some interesting and fun facts that I did not know. Uh, about or some things that I thought looked fun or cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, so we got to talk about Rick McCollum, the the producer. Talk about him at the end of the podcast too. Uh, so art design, you know, you, 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 the first couple things were essentially producer who gives the director everything he needs to tell his best story. And then the director and 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 George is also the script writer, so they start with the script. Then it goes to art design. Um, yeah, I, I like how they took a, a kind of linear view of the process of making the film. Yeah, it looks like a uh, like the world's biggest power uh, not, not PowerPoint, but um, maybe it is PowerPoint. Whatever, whatever the Visio world's oh, biggest yeah, Visio yeah. document, where there's just all these clusters and constellations of departments mm-hmm. with all these people, and it's just like it's it's you know when they zoom out uh, at, in the very beginning, you can see all 910 of these people that, that that are working on this. But how it begins with the um you know the art design where it's essentially Lucas saying, "Well, here's the scene and, you know, his typical take a hamburger and bite, take a bite out of it and here's the Millennium Falcon." Uh that's stuff that I think we've seen a lot before. Yeah. Um I I kind of want to skip ahead a bit to like the editing because I think editing is is the thing I find most interesting about filmmaking, but the thing that also intimidates me the most. I mean, that's really far into the documentary. Like, um, some some of the really interesting stuff to me was the previs stuff, where they're doing essentially what Lucas calls videomatics, um, which are like animated storyboards in computer graphics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, that's what I. That's right. I didn't oh, mean that like okay. actual editing. This, uh, this, this. The fact that there's a lot of edits. I guess what I'm saying is that there's a lot of editing now in the Dave's special effects, uh, and also the Ben Burt, the sound guy, is yeah. now one of like the the leaders of this department because like these animatics and things are uh, movies unto themselves, and they're actually. You know, because since filming and special effects are so expensive, they have to. It's not just like the days of charcoal drawings of like postcard sized things like they do almost the entire film. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this particular effect scene, they did like, you know, the soup to nuts, like in little tiny digital models, uh, of every beat of action where the actors are going. Yeah, it's really weird to me, though, that that doesn't actually end up on the screen because um, hmm. they spend all this time doing these very extremely detailed videomatics, which I think you need to do so that you know what pieces you need to build in green screen form Mm -hmm. uh, to get the action you need. But also, then Lucas throws all that out Mm -hmm. at the end uh, of the filming process and says, okay, we're editing now, let's make a movie out of this, and then we'll go back and reshoot a whole bunch of stuff. And I I don't know, it it almost seems like... Do do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing to to be doing these, these intensely detailed videomatics when... So much of like some of the the things I love about old movie making is like the the creativity involved, the the mm-hmm. almost uh, salvaging nature of editing. Yeah, like you can't, you no longer can go in and save a movie in editing because you got everything you need because you did the videomatic and you shot it one to one. You know, so like, does that take any of the well, it's almost the art out of it? 
I, that's a good question because there's also a lot of duplication of effort. Like I counted three different departments, maybe four that built Mustafar models in yeah. some way. And then they were just entirely discarded for the next phase. Uh-huh. Like the lighting guys had their own model. The previs guys had their own model. The special effects guys actually had their own model. Then they got to build mm-hmm. it in composite. It, it does seem like a lot of duplicate work, but like you're right. Um, I, I I don't know that the the films are saved in editing. It's almost like the way Lucas described him doing the film is it's like the film is a block of marble because he's shot so much stuff and so many different things. And now he's like whittling it away to just the things he needs. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're finding the statue within the block of marble. So it's a different kind of process. Um, But you're right. As much as they talk about how expensive it is to shoot, um, you know, film, even with the digital stuff, just how you know expensive it's it's wild that they do these these cuts in the movies. And then Lucas just, you know, kind of shoots what he feels he needs uh, without much. I mean, I guess that that makes sure he gets the basics and then he can kind of go wild. I I don't know. I I guess so. I, I guess I would just feel like. You know, why am I spending all this time putting this detailed videomatic together when really we could just think about the scene, write down the elements we need, mm-hmm. talk about it, and be done? Because mm-hmm. the videomatics don't actually transfer to the final film. As, I think it's because as closely as I'd want. Also, it's like they act like this thing is all sequential process, but I'm mm-hmm. sure a, a lot, another part of the previs is so the post-production can begin while the production is happening. Yeah, they talk about how they're they're editing at the same time that they're shooting. Exactly. Uh, just different parts of the film. Right. So I imagine, you know, and the fact that you can, you know, motion, motion control all that stuff and rotoscope all that stuff um, makes it to where once you get... It's like the actors' performances from the visual effects guys don't really even matter that much mm-hmm. because they're just elements that they paste into where they need to go. Yeah. Um. But, you know, the other thing is, like, they're, like they, they talk about the production office, which is essentially accounting. Uh, it, it's, it's contract negotiation. It's this person needs money. How are we going to get them money? Uh, Getting everybody paid so they don't quit. Right. <laughs> the yeah. unions don't come after them. For, make, sure, make sure the catering yeah. is paid. But, you know, that's one of those. Another one, like, they show some guys pushing papers and dun 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 <laughs> to the next one. <laughs> right. Uh, the production design, which is figuring out how to make the sets like you've got these conceptual these artist paintings like okay this has to be a real structure that can support actors swinging on it or at least this little chunk of it does right yeah yeah yeah. deciding even which chunks to make into sets because like oh do we really need a set of right you know this whole thing or can we get away with this little chunk of it yeah can they bounce on a big green ball yeah and we'll just we'll just fix it all in post (laughs) that's hilarious because you know we did this interview with the location scouts uh, uh-huh. for Breaking Bad not too long ago, like uh, Michael mentions. But uh-huh. th- I, I, I didn't see a single word in this documentary about location scouts because there probably weren't any. It was yeah. probably all soundstage, all green screen. Well, you see, we had to go to the Mustafarian <laughs> world to get the actual you know, <laughs> lava plane that they wanted. And yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, like, they did there were, things like all. shoot the volcano. I get that. Yeah. Um, they had to go out to Italy or whatever and get mm-hmm. that on tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, as far as like, oh, where are we going to shoot? There isn't there isn't anywhere to pick. Yeah. Because there's nowhere to shoot. Uh, but they go from production design to construction, which I, and they make a point about how like, these construction crews can rival like large conventional construction projects like, you know, scrapers or stadiums or whatnot. And it makes sense because. This is really serious work. 
you have to work safe. I imagine that's the prime directive. Yeah. Fast and cheap. And all of those things seem to be at odds with each other. Like, you they can't, do. you know, especially, like, when you're just talking about these big green facades, these big green facades, like, you know, where it's just plywood, nail, but it still has to be structurally sound. It still has to bear the weight. It's like sometimes these sets get rotated and dropped and lots of like weird, like, you know, what is the code for a collapsing shield generator that's falling into a lot, you know, there, well, what, what's the, what's the, uh, the building code for that, you know? Yeah, there isn't any. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's gotta be, I'm sure they have guidelines as far as, you know, tensile strengths and whatnot, but golly it's got to be very challenging knowing that if you you know and you do something wrong people could die or something could break down and cause delays Mm -hmm. uh yeah i like seeing just you know how much goes into the construction of a set just from like the the builders and the welders and like all all these different people who come together to slap a set together but then the tragic thing is how quickly they tear those down. And I don't think this is the case with every film that's made. I I know Mm -hmm. it's not. There are many films that preserve their sets for one reason or another. Or television series can preserve sets for years and years. Not knowing if they'll use them again. um, Just saying, hey, this element might come in handy in another movie that we're making. Uh, There are a lot of reasons to keep stuff around. Lucas, apparently, uh, Lucasfilm doesn't do that. They just destroy their sets immediately after working on them. Yeah. Which I got. That's got to be sad, right? That's got to be sad as as somebody who spent maybe a hundred hours putting together this elaborate set. Although I guess they're not that elaborate if they're just green screen. I mean, I feel like I don't know. I, I guess you get circumspect. Like like me as a programmer, you know, I would uh, work for months, sometimes years, on a project and then move on, and I had no idea what ended up happening with that, or if it got canceled but, but what a year if, later. What if you or, or sometimes wrote it never something even... and then you put it into production for a week and then. They said, okay, now tear it all down. Like, deconstruct it line by line and throw it out the what door. What if you get three weeks from production and they just cancel the project? Yeah. That I mean, that's happen happened to me, and it's like, well, okay. It doesn't make you feel good. Yeah, no, it does not. It does right. not. It does not. I mean, I it guess here it was baby. built, and you can point to this thing and say, I built that. Um, you better Instagram that shit, because right. that's and, the only I, evidence you're going to have. I actually didn't build the thing. I built the shape that Ewan's boot was standing on yeah. that then later got like buried by... But, but yeah, I, the, the the general space he's occupying was enabled by my set design. Yeah. Uh, I, I Okay, props near and dear to my heart, because I feel like of all... The departments to be stuck the, the, to be in this would be my favorite i in my notes word for word the props department is easily the coolest to me yes yes <laughs> and i i mean I, i've done a little bit um you know for a project my brother and i worked on a long time ago we both built lightsabers um when i built for my hellboy costume i built like a replica of the samaritan from a nerf maverick gun i i and i you know one of my favorite things to do is like watch adam savage yeah, you know, knock His together a spacesuit or, or a s- alien spear or whatever. I mean, that's just almost like, it's it's the perfect blend of like art, the artistic and the practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just really cool. And I yeah, this this to me seems like it's my dr- my my dream job. And I, along with that, like I think the costuming department is actually really interesting yeah. for the same reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, when they were talking about, you know, the 14 different versions of a costume that Anakin wears right. over the course of this one scene, yeah. it's like, 
Man, and I assume they have to make multiple copies of each of those costumes you have because, to, because what if he shits his pants during a scene, right? Or right? like to talk about the continuity, they're shooting these out of order and they're getting you know fire marks and scorched and dirty yeah. and burn holes, and they have to know which of those. So yeah, you have to have multiple versions of everything. And, and like you look at Rick McCallum and you say, okay, well he's the producer, he he does all of this shit, right? He he runs the whole show. No, 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 way. no. There are assistants upon assistants upon assistants, right. and. Even just documenting, like, the the thing, the number one thing that impressed me the most, Mm -hmm. I think, is the attention to detail and documentation and and the way that that feeds back into the speed with which they're able to do things because, and even being able to do things at all, like the effects department later on talks about, you know, how we have to have, like, the exact camera lens camera that was used to film this and the lens settings and we have to have all of these marks on the walls, otherwise we can't do our job. And just, like, writing all that information down, which is some, like, production assistant's job, right? Yeah. Just sit on set, watch what's happening, and write this down. Write down time codes. Write down settings. Write down everything. If uh, if we're doing a shot that doesn't have your weird marks, throw the glowing balls on the wall. <laughs> right. It's... That job, I have to imagine, is so freaking thankless. And I was thinking the same thing, like, but it's for, so important. for the costume continuity. There's got to be one person assigned to I mean. both... Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin and it's like you keep track of which outfit they should be wearing how many burn holes yeah. there are and, and then, like they, they were saying oh well you know we might say eh, we don't want to shoot part five of this scene today let's shoot part six and that all right. has to ripple out to everyone involved and they have to know going into that oh well we don't need this costume instead we need this costume I would love to see what kind of because I bet there's like dozens of different types of philosophies and tools, but I, I wonder how these people stay organized. It, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, what tools could I would would just blow my mind if I yeah. saw? Yeah, is, right? is there like something they got on their smartphones? It's like some kind of weird containers that hold details and they can switch them around. Or I get the impression that it's probably a Lucas Arts specific thing oh really like i oh they with, with the amount of time mm, and money they've invested in tech mm-hmm. i imagine they also invested in organizational stuff too yeah yeah and but communication and things like a lot that. of these artists though are very particular about doing things like hey i've been doing costuming continuity for 20 years fuck the ilm you know the <laughs> ilm way yeah i mean probably not because they george the, the star wars project is an 800 pound gorilla so right you come in with a the attitude that you know better than the team mm-hmm. that makes that. Right. You, you, you probably might, don't you get might the be job. out the door in a while. Yeah, you probably don't get yeah. the job. Um, but I got a question because they talked about how like the light, you had the hero lightsabers that are the immaculately modeled, you know, they're like heirloom quality. If you held that in your hand, you'd think if I could find a power button, I'll beam a plasma and shoot <laughs> out of it. Yeah. Then they have like the, the stunt combat ones. They got various, but they had a lot of these astonishingly detailed rubber lightsabers that had this like uh you know uh surface level chroming plating put it on that was like yeah. an upgrade because the old ones i guess when they'd take impact f- flakes of that metal could get you know come off and get in actors eyes and now these like scratch and gouge like realistically mm-hmm. uh how many of those rubber lightsabers ended up in people's buttholes <laughs> Because the number's not zero. The number's absolutely not. I see, I saw More those, importantly, I want to know who's. I saw those guys working in a plot department. There was yeah. th- there was yeah. uh, some funny walking and some silly grins. You can't tell me Brett Burt's not in there no. talking about. Oh, I need a sound effect. No, uh, uh, the the the, the, glo- the that's yeah. When when he every time he was mentioned about shovels shovel. in the glopping mud, 
know that he's talking about rubber lightsaber handles and his butthole. That's that's that that that's the code word that's uh, a fact. at the Skywalker Ranch. That's fact. Yeah. Um, I, I got to say the the one thing there were a couple of departments where a lot of people work in the department, like um, digital effects stuff. Yeah. And I thought it was rather hilarious that in a documentary that purports to be about celebrating the below the line people mm-hmm. and the production crew. Mm-hmm. That the name scrolled by so fast, I couldn't read a single damn one. Right. It's like whoosh, and yeah. then 500 people have been listed. Yeah. Especially since they could have ni- done a nice, they could have done a nice uh, horizontal, like Chevron crawl at the bottom yeah. of the entire segment Something. Um, to get everyone a little bit of credit. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I, I imagine these guys are used to people fast forwarding their credits and even not watching them. So, yeah. To Michael's point there, hair and makeup. A lot more wrangling of sweaty hair than I imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think of hair and makeup as like Amadala with her crazy crystal chandelier wigs and yeah. you know her crazy kabuki makeup. But I never thought of like, uh, well, Hayden Christensen's super sweaty and his hair is stringy and it was stringy in a particular way. And now we got the close ups and you got to go in there and mold his hair so it's plastered on his forehead a certain way. Like uh, I you're misting, constantly being misted. <laughs> you definitely. That's are, my yeah. least fa- favorite part of getting my hair cut. I don't get the it I, now. I just my hair buzz. But like when they mist yeah. your hair and like that that cold cold water hits your face. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're an actor, that's just your your life. If you if you're doing an action scene uh, or something in the jungle or something in the boiler of the Titanic, you're just gonna get misted nonstop. You are hell hell for me. <laughs> uh, this is part of Lucas's war on makeup departments. Uh, he simply wants to eliminate them by creating all digital characters. I mean, you don't have to do hair and makeup if it's all digital. <laughs> right. Uh, the makeup needs to be greener. Greener. Yeah. Much greener. <laughs> Uniformly green. Can we get a light test so this is perfectly green? Uh, Mr. Yeah. Lucas, you know that we're working on Hayden Christensen here, right? <laughs> well, he has big ears. What, what, what am I to do? Yeah. He's actually uh, researching acquiring Orion slave girls in some kind of illegal movie breeding experiment just so that he has living green screen <laughs> living green screen okay. people yeah yeah map any form onto them mm-hmm. uh but yeah hair and makeup uh we already talked about the costumes and the thing I, again a thing i found surprising the continuity especially i mean I, I guess you always think of that in terms of like a lord of the rings like aragon you know he got drugged through the mud by a horse last uh scene so he's got to have mud on his but the act idea that there's continuity within a minute of fighting because of lava and lightsabers and all this other stuff yeah i was wondering pretty for, for the hair stuff that you were talking about a mm-hmm. second ago um is do you think that's because of a continuity issue or is that more the whims of lucas where he says huh well, i like his hair over to the side a little bit probably just, both just because it looks visually probably better both, yeah i think i think i think it's it's probably both because they do show him a couple of times being like oh yeah hair a little to three strands to the left and i'm like what does that even mean i know that was actually yeah yeah three strands. three strands yeah just just three i wonder if that's ac- he's, he's got to get out my micrometer a- lucas <laughs> he's got to be talking about like lots of hair right He's just he's mis-speaking. Because be. I think even like a low-level hair and makeup guy would be like, you know what, fuck you. Or I would just be like, floop, floop, and oh, there's there. there. I moved to three, can you tell? Yeah, right. It's like the emperor has no clothes. Uh-huh. Fuck you and your strands, Lucas. <laughs> uh, we should move on to, I mean, the actors, these is, we're, we're now dipping above the line. Yeah, don't, don't go there. Uh, I just want to say, though, mm. it's, it's got, it's hell. 
you like I when they showed the actual shots of them acting on these screens, it's this brightly lit green room, featureless, insanely loud because of the wind machines. Mm-hmm. Like and, and doing that for hours and hours and hours over and over and over again. Do what you what you got to do to get the shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, movie magic right there. It is. It Ma- is. Maybe even more of a hell is when they show the ADR process after mm-hmm. the fact. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, hey, uh, Hayden, we need you to come in a year later. And remember all those grunts you were making during the scene where you were right. fighting Obi-Wan? Yeah, we, right. we uh-huh. need that to happen again, except this time for real. The good news is we have plenty of rubber lightsabers in the booth <laughs> so, for, for you to, take to your pick. draw your inspiration from. Um, shall we talk about the stunt? And choreography uh sure uh this is one of those things that is well studied in documentaries yes I, i've seen it many many times everywhere i want to say i because i forget the name of the guy who directed the the stunts in this movie um but they, they mentioned later on in like the sound editing which we'll talk about in a minute how if you have like too much sound it just comes across as a wall of noise and there is no mm-hmm. you know like anakin's walking and obi-wan's walking they're swinging lightsabers and panels are exploding and the lava's flowing and it's exploding and there's it's like it's like it's just too much it just becomes like white noise i feel like this guy's stunt coordination is a little that way like he so wants to imbue every movement with a particular like oh well, this is because he's aggressive and this is a killing stroke and all that that it I, I find the, the prequel fights, sword fights, uh, almost exhausting to watch. Hmm. Um, and even like this one on one thing. I mean, it's you know, this is where it's like I have to talk about Star Wars because I don't know if it's this guy or if it's part of like my bias against it. But none of the like the, this fight here as as pivotal, like, you know, George knew like this is a scene that's pivotal to the, the whole franchise. This is arguably where you know the series kind of pivots this is it's a this is emotional spiritual core but it doesn't hold a candle to any of the fights in the old trilogy emotionally Hmm. emotionally um and i think part of it is because it's just it goes on forever and there's so much flourish and so much spin so much this that and the other that there's it it, you lose the rhythm it's like it's the stunt fighting equivalent of a wall of sound where Mm -hmm. nothing quite sticks out yeah i i I can see where you're coming from there um huh because that's the whole idea you're, it, you're trying to tell a story uh, with the, the fighting and i felt this the, the, a lot of times the story kind of lost its plot and there's also like you know this is more of a cl- attack of the clones but uh you know in the jedi storm the fighting pit mm-hmm. there's this like big scene of them spinning around uh like and showing all the different uh jet and they all have to have their individual like ready their lightsaber move Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like at some point it's like there's only so many ways you can activate a lightsaber before you start looking like you're stupid <laughs> or you got something wrong or like this is the first day that's you know right it's a little Peter Parker you know in, in the first Spider-Man where he's trying to figure out what hand motion to summon his his webs out of and mm-hmm. he's like trying to do thumbs up and peace signs and I'm like okay that would look ridiculous if Spider-Man actually did this I've got a Jedi with tentacles coming out of his head and he whips out the sword and he brings it between his ass crack and down to his ball sack and then twirls it on both elbows and then it's like what the fuck holds it up high and says thunder thunder (laughs) thundercats (laughs) yeah yeah and Samuel's got his bad motherfucker it's just not not a good look but I think part of it is if I'm if, if I'm trying to go now the other way, this guy's trying to tell a story that's weak. 
You know, like the, huh. like the emotional underpinning, the foundation hasn't been there through two and a half movies. And now he's trying to do, you know, maybe he's just trying to go for broke to get, you know, what emotion he can out of the audience. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to get into a whole discussion on the prequels. Don't you? Because we, we have probably done that in the past. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I might do it at the end of the podcast. But yeah, there, there wasn't a whole lot. Uh, there, there wasn't an easy way to salvage what was left of the Star Wars Anakin tale mm-hmm. after episode two. Yeah. Because uh, they really fucked it up just with stiff dialogue and, mm-hmm. and just completely wooden characters. Yeah. Uh, episode three did as much as I thought it could have done to mm-hmm. try and salvage that, but ultimately it had to fail. Uh so I, I don't know. I agree with you, though. The, the wall of stunts is very much a thing, and it, it can be traced back all the way to the beginning, like the Darth Maul fight, right, with Qui-Gon Jinn mm-hmm. uh, and, and Obi-Wan, that stuff. I still think that's the best prequel it, it lightsaber is. fight. Yeah, but it's still one of those wall May- of stunt kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there um, are a couple of moments in there that I remember, but the rest of it is gone i felt like it, it flowed i um of course i think that, that was a completely different stunt coordinator too wasn't it like ray so. parks yeah. did i think the stunt coordination maybe but, not but the, maybe the, so the prequel fights definitely have a, a similar vibe to all of them though yeah yeah yeah. it's it's about speed it's about right. impressing you like with we want athleticism of these right jedis yeah even though size matters not and all that right uh yeah it's, it's and probably the worst example is that yoda fight that yoda mm-hmm. and dooku fight mm-hmm. i mean once it, you get over the crowd pleasing aspect, right. just see the shock of seeing Yoda <laughs> fight like that. Yeah, it is. It is kind of. I, I kind of have a soft spot for some of the Yoda versus Emperor work because it's like I okay. guess at that in point the, I, I, in the Senate yeah, room because I was at that point I chambers. wasn't taking the trilogy the trilogy seriously. So just like yeah, why not? Why mm-hmm. not? Ian McKe- uh, Ian McDermott <laughs> seems like he's having a hell of a good time fighting a Muppet right, that fighting. doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, that, you know, it's, uh, also just, I guess the creativity of coming up with a sprawling battle with these swords that are completely deadly and where the environment's collapsing. I mean, this is, this is a far cry from like the princess bride or the final duel of Rob Roy. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it, it, I don't think it's impactful as those two, but like it, it's a yeah. it's a hell of a thing to coordinate something like this. It is. Yeah. And, um, and then you talked about all the elements that go into it and that wall yeah. of sound kind of thing. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about the sound department now, because I have plenty to say about them. Uh, it, it's aside from the props, probably my most uh, interesting. Sure. Of the departments. Yeah. We can obviously skip over directors. I want to talk a little bit about cinematography, but yeah, I think sound we can talk. Oh, we can yeah. Get yeah. Into sound. OK, we'll we'll reverse them here. Um, So sound. I think there I, I feel bad in some ways for the sound department on Star Wars because uh-huh. I think there's a fine line between having a lot of stuff to choose from and having t- so much stuff that it's completely overwhelming and muddies all of the waters that you, sure. that you have to swim in. Uh, and I think their sound effects catalog might be a little too big because <laughs> I, I looked at I, I mean, just when Brett Bird is talking about like these the sheer amount of stuff that they have once they catalog all the footage and catalog all the sounds that they get, how do you ever choose what to actually use out of that? Like it just, it turns your job into a slog to find a needle in a haystack. I mean, you and I edit audio. That's our bread and butter. 
Yeah, you know? I don't do any real editing compared but, but, to these I mean, guys. But, but, but what I'm saying is, you and I yeah. know enough to when they're scrolling through their workflows and you just see. 40, yeah. 50, 60 audio tracks. You like for, for a single sound type. I, my like my knees literally got weak like when I see someone get hit in the balls because I just yeah. like how 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 in the world do you keep all that stuff that that stuff balanced and organized? And that's why it takes 18 months to put together simply the sound effects for sure, this movie, right? Sure. Sure. So I, I don't know, at the same time like you want to have a vast catalog because you might need something that you don't know you need until you know you need it. Um, and it needs to be there. But yeah, I, I felt both like impressed and also sad mm-hmm. <laughs> for the people having to do that job. Well, we also, um, we interviewed Paula Fairfield, mm-hmm. uh, the game of Thrones sound designer. And she says the worst is when for, you know, cinematic reasons they've, they've worked, you know, they, she cited like Battle of the Bastards. There's a point in the middle of the battle where they just drop out all the sound uh, to give like the mutant to, to build suspense. And she's like, "Yeah, you have mixed emotions because like that's ob- obviously the right artistic choice to yeah. to make, but also you wiped your ass with 30 seconds of my work that might have taken three, four, five, six weeks to to, to complete." Yeah, <laughs> so you could have told me. Yeah, imagine, <laughs> imagine if like late in the, late, late in the editing, they're like, "What if we just, what if we just dropped out the, what if we just dropped out the sound?" Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's almost like imagine if there's a movie where it's like for thirty seconds, like they're like, "What if we just shut the picture off?" Well, I mean, George Lucas is always talking about making silent films. What if he took <laughs> all of the dialogue and just said, "Nah, we're not going to do it." I mean, my my visuals stand alone. <laughs> I've I have did this actually happen or is it something I've been thinking? Um, I I thought a silent movie version of Attack of the Clones would be pretty good where you would literally just take out the dialogue and put dialogue cards um, in in to to see what like Anakin and uh, Padme were saying to each other. And I almost feel like, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in the prequels. It's just almost it's almost entirely the characterizations and dialogue that's garbage. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I feel like that could be fixed, but not. I mean, that's their thing. We talk sometimes about like the political and social ramifications of all this, uh, you know, making making movie clips. They're indistinguishable. Like you can just, uh, you know, 3D render you and make you say anything you want in your voice with your face. Uh, that's going to suck for society, but man, imagine the remake of Star Wars you can you can do, or any movie really. Yeah, you know you've got you've got several you've you've got several hours of of test footage you can feed into the machine, and then you can just do whatever you want. Like that will probably happen in the next twenty years or so. And I can see them using like uh, Adobe's voice tech, where you mm-hmm. can just type and it will say it in the yeah. voice of someone yeah. to do all of the ADR. Cause what do you need to call the actor in right. a year later? Just get some intern to type up the dialogue, run it through this filter and boom, you've got all the ADR audio you need. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I also like the other thing in, in the sound, the recording on set, like I never really thought about the difficulty of holding booms. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the guy, when the guy's like, because I, you know, this weekend I installed doors in my house, and there was a lot of uh, like holding heavy power tools over my head for like minutes at a time, uh-huh. and it, boy, the burn in the tricep area starts almost immediately. These guys, these guys are fucking champions. They're like Atlas holding up the world. Yeah. You know, uh, you can't have that boom dipping into your shot. You got to keep that thing up high, soldier. Uh, and they they do it for 
I mean, you know, you get takes and breaks and whatnot, but still, mm-hmm. they they must have trap. They must have traps and uh, triceps of 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 steel. Yeah, maybe we can use this to bridge over to cinematography. But I am constantly amazed by the amount of coordination it takes to get a shot. Like the you know, at some point you look at the boom guy, and he is inches yeah. off screen and, and his and, boom and, is inches from the top of the and frame jogging backwards right and he's he's got to just trust, trust that there are no cables left yeah. by the the audio or video guys behind him uh that everybody else is doing their job and getting out of the way and like the cinematography stuff where you know they, they were talking about how they've got one guy whose only job is to pull focus mm-hmm. like super important but also something that on a on a big budget film like this, you have the luxury to do. I think a lot of independent filmmakers go, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. I pull my own focus. I aim my own damn it's cameras. Like, it's, it's like, it's like junior high f- football where the quarterback is probably your kicker. Cause he's just your best athlete <laughs> right. versus pro where you've got a dedicated long snapper yeah. and a he dedicated punter and kicker three and, times a game. And yeah, like, yeah, because 40 seconds stakes are high money, yeah. and, and the money's big, but, but also like that is, an impressive thing in and of itself, right? It's very impressive to be able to pull your own focus and adjust your own cameras and mm-hmm. get your own shots. But it's also very impressive in a different way to just coordinate everything that needs to happen yeah. with so many people. Get the right hired gun in at the right time. Yeah. And you get the best of all worlds. Yeah. It's super impressive. But, you know, so much of cinematography is about lighting. Like anytime you hear the Better Call Saul podcast, they're always talking about, you know, how to get, especially when you're mixing very bright, very dark areas. And Mustafar seemed like it was hell to shoot. Yeah. And then I never thought about this. You're shooting these guys that were being bathed in red, fiery light on a fucking green screen. Yeah. Where the the ambient lighting is fighting you tooth and nail for the effect that you're you're trying to get, mm-hmm. and damn, damn, that's got to be hard. You got to shoot with the lighting accounting for the green screen. It's going to look natural when you composite it into this hellscape. Yeah, and I guess that's where the videomatic stuff comes in super handy because you can see where the light sources are going to be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they, they have an, i imagine they're probably flipping back and forth between like a test background and like does this look good does this look good yeah you know a little bit more purple in the light um, and i think it all comes down to like the colorist who right. w- would you know in digital effects go in and just make sure all the colors work right. correctly you know okay well this is lava but this light is a little too daylight let's bring in right you know a, a little more orange into it that that kind of stuff. Is yeah, crazy. remind me because like I thought that like when you watching uh, you know Ewan and uh, Hayden like on the set they look very garish like mm-hmm. an unnatural uh, and yeah. it reminded me of like in the old black and white days like if you've ever seen like a color picture of uh, the, the Adams family set it's mm-hmm. like Technicolor because they didn't give a shit what actual color was they were looking to see what right shade of gray they're going for and sometimes it's orange when in real <laughs> life it'd be a baby blue and it's yeah, yeah. that like if uh, if they had to light him in this unnatural way so that it would look good when it's act when it was uh, when it's actually composited together and I saw it's like man and then you know all these crazy camera shot uh, crane shots on these remote controlled cranes mm-hmm. and yeah, like you said, the the coordination um, and just pulling that and then doing it and going back in the tent. And look, it's it's it is amazing. I'm I'm super jealous of the video system they've got. Like, we don't need anything like that here. But no. man, it's so fucking cool. It'd be nice to steal like a fourth of it. You yeah. know, like, can I just break off this <laughs> corner of your setup and, right. and take it home with us? Um, let's talk about editorial. 
Okay. Which uh, McCollum, McCollum says is uh, responsible for shaping the visual information of the movie. I think one of the reasons, like, I think editing is fascinating, and I love hearing editors talk about, like you said, the uh, you know times where th- movies have been saved or scenes have been saved in editing. And there's mm-hmm. famous Lucas examples I can think of of like uh, the Tuscan Raider scene, mm-hmm. you know, rocking the Tuscan Raider back and forth to build a little tension because there was a, a missing beat in the action. And the Godfather, you know, the famous empty corridors uh, with footsteps that Lucas completely found just with little seconds of, of uh, extra footage at the, at the beginning and ending of shots. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to say, I don't think I could ever be a successful editor because I'm poorly organized. Mm. And one thing that hit home is these guys have their shit together. All these clips are in to. containers and marked and mm-hmm. like physically – like, they got this this digital tape that's in, like, big Tupperware things. Like, here's Mustafar, and here's that. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I Is that something that Audition does poorly, or just I have not explored it? Because I feel like every time I've done even modest video things, I quickly overwhelm what I can see of the organizational clip system that they have. Yeah, I think I think it's just getting, you gotta get just used using it. it. Right. Like they have tools in there, like bins and stuff to organize organize mm. things and subsequences and mm-hmm. all this stuff. But yeah, getting getting used to the process. I mean, that's ninety percent of organizations just coming up with the process and using it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and they very much seem like they stick to a process. You, you have know? to. You got to with that much that much footage. I I was impressed by you know not only the the warehouse of film that they have at the end of a shoot, but also the digitization process Mm -hmm. um where you know the every every tape gets logged because you want to actually know where it is on the tape and then it goes over to the digitization uh chambers let's call them where you know it's run through and it's it's made digital and then sent over to the editors uh that whole process to me is really cool Mm -hmm. it's so mundane like it's Mm -hmm. just something that you got to do because if you don't you don't have a way to edit it but i don't know it seems cool yeah um, I also like modern, you know, like we talked about a little bit is that the, the editorial is also very like vital to saving the, uh, the special effects budget. Yeah. It's like, you know, they got to get like all their shots in and they, sometimes they make, they make choices based on, you know, uh, how expensive or not expensive it will be to convert that. And it Which, seems like he, he, the Lucas works with the editor on the film, one of the two main editors, yeah. um, to, to kind of shape the look of it in a rough way, kind of like the videomatic stuff, mm-hmm. um, the previs stuff. And then they send it over to, you know, their effects department to actually make it look good. Right. Uh, so that kind of dovetails into the industrial lights and magic, the special effects part. Um, and we already talked about how like, there's this whole department called 3d match mover, mm. which is they're they're responsible for putting these markers. Like they have X, Y, Z coordinates on all the sets. So when the camera moves, because you know, a special effects camera has to match I, I, uh, exactly the position and the the movements of uh, the set, and you can't. This isn't like the old school Star Wars where they motion capped the model of the Millennium Falcon and then did the same move in a, the hangar base set and put them together. This mm-hmm. is far, far beyond this because um, mm-hmm. you've got an entirely virtual space and it's they, they talk about how easy it is when the camera's moving really fast and these like really tight shots where it's just like maybe uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's head and shoulders, how easy it is to lose that frame of reference. And once you do that, yeah. you're lost, Yep, you know, spatially. 
because you know you're just making guesses and and, and if, if things are off just a bit it's going to the, the human brain and eye is very good at tracking motion and sensing when things are right and wrong and it's really easy to confuse and lose an audience so yeah it reminded me of um some of the hardships of like making motion feel uh making things feel fast in space Mm -hmm. because you don't have that frame of reference of the background to compare the movement of the foreground to. Right. So, so yeah, it's, it's a crazy thing. And then I I really love those little sticky things that they have for those scenes where, yeah, we're, we're in too close. We don't have any dots in the background. Yeah. Throw one of these in. Yeah. They're these little light balls that are allow them to track where, where the background's going and where the camera is. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one I thought would be fun is the digital math department, uh, where they're essentially compositing real-life volcano eruptions. They've got this uh, viscous fluid that they're shooting through jets, and they're mm-hmm. taking smoke. And the, he, this guy paints this, like, 30,000-pixel-wide canvas. Yeah. And then has to animate it. Like, there's right. a lot going on. There's clouds sliding over. There's, like, a sun that looks like it's being eclipsed or something. Like, there's just all kinds of really cool... Uh, stuff he's doing in it and he talks about how it just takes months like one person to get this mat is like six to eight months worth of work i I mean this is i don't understand how a film like this makes money i don't i mean if it takes you a minute uh if it takes you seventy thousand person hours to create a minute of this footage i I get it this is a big scene Mm -hmm. not all of them are like this but the the production required to get that on the screen seems like it would far outstrip the budget, no matter what the budget is. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know how it happens. Hollywood accounting, man. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, uh, we spent 150 million. Actually, we spent 700 million. Well, but... that's the thing that I've this the Star Wars movies were seen as very frugal for what they were. Like Episode One's yeah. budget was like 70 million, something like that. Um, and you, George Lucas did a lot of I think pioneering techniques to make that happen. Um, some of those weren't yeah. actor friendly or performance friendly or maybe <laughs> strictly speaking, uh, purely artistic decisions. But, uh, I, I, that's, you know, and then the film makes, uh, $700 million worldwide and the, yeah, that's how they're profitable, but it is, it is kooky. Um, it's just mind boggling everything that goes into it. Yeah. Yeah. And but, I don't know, like I, there's the blockbuster. Hollywood blockbusters are the one type of art I think is a potentially critically endangered organism because it does take tons of people coming together and spending tons of money. Like film, uh, like like you know, micro budget stuff. You know, something like Get Out. Like you can you can always get people to scrape together credit cards and and make something like that. But something like mm-hmm. a Marvel movie. If we ever got to a society where people just didn't pay for art, yeah, um, that like that the, the only way that is financed is because people spend twenty, thirty bucks on DVDs and Blu-rays and spend fifty, sixty dollars taking their family to movies. And if that ever stopped becoming, if 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 our culture ever stops valuing that, um, I think that's the that's the one form of art that that could be on a chopping block. Because yeah, uh, that's the only like the worldwide consumer <laughs> culture is what enables it. Yeah, and I, I look at that compared to, like, video games, right? Because there are big, mm. big, big budget video games. But sure. I, for some reason, I don't see them as the same. because Maybe because they don't blend, like, the real world and the digital as 
much as movies do, which I, I guess I was surprised by. During this movie, they talk about, you know, all the different things that go into this shot, and some of it is uh, catching real-world stuff on a camera. Some of it is creating models with lava flowing down them. Some of it mm-hmm. is green screen with an art department putting in the background, matte paintings. It, it's amazing to me how many different types of... Uh, types of visuals mm-hmm. go into this. Why? I, I guess I would have expected by episode three for Lucas to have pretty much gotten off the, Hey, we need to build a model of this and film this in real life train. If anything, I felt like it went backwards. Yeah. Like, and like, if, like episode one, I thought he was all about like, we're yeah. going to do everything digital yeah. here. Although maybe also, cause I know, I remember there was a lot of, uh, people saying this, this is poorly CG when it's actually real life environment that they, had, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the battle uh-huh. of the Gungans versus the droids at the end. Everyone said, oh, this is just, just shitty grass effects. Well, that was actually a real grass field. <laughs> Asshole. They composited yeah. on. But so maybe it's just and because and, and, that was always also uh, people are always comparing like Lord of the Rings, which was like very unabashed in its love for real things and real sets and real locations and real models and, and whatnot. And maybe. Yeah. Uh, I don't because because I yeah the, the, the particular I was shocked that they built a set of the lava yeah and it looked fucking cool man it looked amazing it's yeah. all foam and it's got a lava river running down and yeah. waterfalls but why yeah especially when you saw a guy build it digitally like five minutes ago yeah um I mean I I do think that because because they talk about the the lighting and rendering how it takes a technician two two to three months to light a special just ju- not to do the special effects not mm-hmm. to do the models just to put the lighting in and then another six to eight weeks for the simulation to run so the light scatters correctly and you get it like that's why you build a model yeah because you get it lit and you shoot it and you're fucking done so you know you don't go you know five weeks into rendering and go oh fuck oh man i love that shadow I forgot his shoe is gonna look awful yeah yeah I wonder how often that happens. I mean, people got to be fired for that. Because how do you... Yeah, they, I mean, computing resources are not cheap. Right, but they they must they have are, like a primitive render that can get you like 90% of the way there so they can... And then, yeah. you know, it's like, well, if it looks good here, it's going to look amazing in the render. Mm-hmm. Um I, I don't know. I'd love I'd love to see what those tools look like. Because we've, we've often remarked when we're editing video, you know, you're not... You're not doing 1080p 60 when you're editing. It's yeah. you know it's it's always degraded so it can can process fast. But right. so you, you just kind of trust it to not look like shit in the yep. the final. Um, but I, yeah, these practical models like watching this man carve mountains with a you know a, a chisel from a block of foam mm-hmm. is just I I, I I love it. <laughs> I love it. The fake lava. Looks, yeah, that was amazing. I, I don't even know. It's like it's like dish soap and pumice stone that they like it's it looks just like lava yeah it's whatever they said they were shooting into the air for the melamine or uh, melamine yeah, something like that it started with an m it's like just viscous fluid but, but they, oh, i thought it was super cool the way they made it look like it was emitting light too right just yeah. shoot it with light from below right it's glowing lava the, tell me it's not yeah I mean, I, I wonder how freaky it is to, like, put your fingers in that, like, when it's really going. <laughs> right, when like, it does looks your all bra- red. Does and... your brain say, like, this is going, this is, like, some Temple of Doom shit? And <laughs> well, they have a guy it. at the bottom of the slide, like, standing there, yeah. and his feet are almost in it. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if I could do that job. That would be an awesome shot to, like, have your shoe, like, after, like, the last day of December, they tear it off, like, uh, take your shoes off and, and, and dangle <laughs> your feet into the lava and just having a nice God. shot of you. <laughs> yeah. Having them composite flames coming up your legs. <laughs> Um, but no, I, 
yeah, shocking how many practical minis and locations they used, which, again, another thing, I would love to be the guy to just cars mountains. Uh, and then it all like comes, good. it comes together in the editing room, which, holy shit. As a guy who just edited a minute and a half right. Nicolas Cage trailer together, yeah. who had like, uh, maybe max, I was looking at five audio tracks. Mm-hmm. Dude, when that guy, when I saw his screen at first, I was like, fuck, that's a lot of audio tracks. And then he scrolls through them, and I'm like, I know. You've got to be fucking kidding me. He's got 40 audio tracks that he's yeah. working with. Yeah. How did you not just get lost in that? That's what I'm saying. That it literally made me feel like I was staring, like like I got too close to Grand Canyon because I just <laughs> I know how hard it can be to do even like yeah like like have a b uh a b and like like uh you know a b and wide shot and three soundtracks and or like yeah. you know some of the Walking Dead skits we did where we layered like different gunshots and cricket sounds and all that stuff and it was like a f- lot of fun but it never got yeah. more than half dozen tracks or so. Yeah. 50, 60, 70? <laughs> I don't know. Dude. Get fucked. Get fucked. And to listen uh-huh. to that and be like, yeah, I need to I need to bring the, you know, the butthole lightsaber sound down, you know, <laughs> a tenth, tenth of a percent. It's right. You know, so the below that's you, you, you pay someone to be incredibly focused and passionate about each one of these things. So when it all comes together again, you, you don't notice it because it sounds like this is exactly what Mustafar would sound like. They call was, those they call those dark sabers, by the way. Dark sabers, yeah, the really? ones that go in the butt. Yeah, oh, those, are, dark, some... those are dark sabers. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> so we talked about said the sound design, but like they, they keep returning to it multiple times. I uh, another job I'd like to have is the foley artist. Yeah, like I've been in lo- like <laughs> those lightsaber hilts. I'm telling you, sure. <laughs> that one artist is she's like you know Anakin's walking sound is a leather jacket, an old like Civil oh, War era yeah. rifle, and an old drill, and they show her just kind of like <laughs> it's all in a wad, and she's just kind of like shaking it in front of a microphone. Yeah, and that's what Hayden Christian sounds like when he's walking while she's watching it on the screen happening, so she knows when to shake it. It's so cool. It's 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 so cool. I love it. And, you know, Ben Burt, because I, when I saw him early on doing, like, the previous stuff, I'm like, well, shit, he's moved up in the world. No, no, no. He's still, mm-hmm. his still main love is environmental sound effects, blaster sounds. Yeah. And, you know, like, the glopping uh, lava sounds. I feel like uh, he has taken the reins of, like, defining the Star Wars sound. Hmm. You know, like, because Star Wars is not defined by its lava sounds or its footsteps or right. its its clanging metal and right. leather. It's defined by its lightsabers, its blasters, its engines, things Droids. like that. Yeah, yeah. So he's de- he's designing all that sound. Yeah, and it, Star Wars does have a very recognizable des- sound design. Absolutely, as much as like Star Trek does, right? Ex- exactly. You, you could you could hear thirty seconds of no dialogue, no music on both of those sets, and you'd know, and it, you'd almost even know whether it's um, Next Generation, old yeah. series, mm-hmm. uh, Deep Space Nine. Uh, so we also get to the score. Uh, and I, I think John Williams is one of the ones that came out of the prequel trilogy with his head held high because yeah. a lot of the things I remember about, uh, I mean the duel of the fates, you and, can't forget duel of the fates. It's so good. And this, this Mustafarian version, yep. which is like a tragic remix of that. And it works, it works. And it gives like, if you had a lesser composer doing the sound, uh, I mean, I would, I would, uh, yeah, I would love to see this set to like a generic soundtrack because <laughs> uh-huh. so much of Lucas is, is able to really lean on Johnny Williams here to, to get, to, to get the emotion we should be feeling, um, uh, f- felt. 
And, and the, the, you know, in this... Uh, John Williams is like, they show him like directing the London Symphony Orchestra and he's saying stuff like, uh, 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 if you lift your bow uh, 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 just slightly <laughs> after that second beat, we'll get the sound we're wanting. Like, how do who, you pick that out? Who the fuck is saying that to the third violinist? <laughs> like, like, how is yeah. he doing it? Like, literally, how is his old ass ears do that? How do you get that skill in the first place? And then how do you yeah. maintain it? At a high level, as old as as old as John Williams is. I mean, it's fifty years of doing this shit. I guess, like, yeah, that you can hear when like one thing is like just a quarter beat off, or yeah. would sound better if they did it this way. Crazy. No, I, that was one of like the highlights for me in this entire documentary is just seeing the the music come together, and mm-hmm. like it's it's a very small portion of the documentary. I've seen it in in grander form, I guess, in mm-hmm. other documentaries, uh, even specifically when it comes to John Williams. But that always gets me like that, that because there's a lot of emotion in music. And Mm -hmm. I I do feel like it's a lot easier to get caught up in the music when you see people actually playing it in the room. Yeah. And you know that there are artists behind this easier than it is to like say, oh, look how amazing of a job this CG artist is doing when he's compositing together this lava. It's like that doesn't have the emotion that music does to it. So those those scenes of like music actually being recorded for something mm. are really cool to me it is funny to see all those symphony orchestra dudes in like sweatpants and t-shirts yeah though. uh-huh well that's that's what i was noticing about it, all r- the really shattered the illusion yeah yeah, yeah 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 it's like oh of course why why would you dress up nice in a job where you're gonna be sweating your ass off on a hot set with yeah. the wind blowing in your face yeah why yeah or yeah if you're going in to record something you're not a camera who cares right right and and you're damn good at your job nobody's gonna say oh well he's wearing a a shitty old raggedy t-shirt he yeah. must not be good no he's in the london fucking symphony orchestra right. but any if you ever see them in real life or any symphony orchestra um and i've been in towns that had really good ones uh you always see them in like the tuxes and tails right so it's right. like just jarring to see a dude blow the french <laughs> horn with like uh you know uh under armor sweatshirt on yeah and there's john williams in all black turtleneck right his thing right he's steve jobs in it uh, or maybe Steve Jobs is John Williams. That I mean, I think John Williams is older than Steve Jobs ever was. Yeah. So yeah, yeah he must be. Uh, Jobs does the jeans though. Johnny's Johnny's rocking all black. I think was he really? I think hmm. wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, then is there other things we, we want to talk about? Because they they also then have like the final screening. Um, and then I thought it's a pretty powerful point like Rick McCullough makes where they're like, you know, now do this a few hundred times more mm-hmm. and you've got revenge of the Sith and they zoom through all the shots. Yeah. As he's saying that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And I mean, that really just drove it home. Like how the fuck does this get made? Right. Cause this is scene 158. Presumably there's at least 157 other scenes that require approximately this much, uh, skill and, and direction. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean, let me ask you what you think about in movie credits because the my willingness to sit through credits is directly proportionate to how good the movie was because sometimes I like sitting there while the credits roll just to kind of collect my thoughts and like uh, as a transition to go back into the outside you know I've been fully immersed in this thing and now um, and then the other is I guess because they entice you to with entertaining credits or mid credit scenes in credit scenes whatever. Yeah, the funny I, thing is they entice you to watch the parts that they deem important. 
uh-huh. which are typically the cast, the director, the writers, yeah, the, the producers. Uh-huh, the above the line. Yeah, they don't ever dip down into the sound department with their fancy Marvel graphics. It's, you know? it's, it's above. Yeah, it's, At some it's, point, it's, it hits black scrolling text. Like, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the 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 mid the mid credit sequence is always above the line. Yeah, and then like all the you know the but they at least do the like the end where you have to sit through the entire credits for it. Um, they do, and I never sit through that. Here's the thing: like, if I were someone who was in a position to maybe hire one of these people, I would absolutely be looking at the credits of the movies I love. Mm-hmm. What good does it do me as a film goer to say? Oh, hey, there's this one guy in this section of ILM who does this one thing that I was interested in. How do I even know what part of the movie they actually worked yeah, on? Yeah, when you're scrolling through 500 visual artists. Yeah. What What did he do? Did he do uh, Anakin's jumping animation or right. did he do the ears on CG Yoda? I don't fucking know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what good does it do me as... Other than like sitting there out of respect, which... But they don't. It's it's weird because like it's kind of like applauding after the end of a movie. Unless you're at the screening where a director is there, what the hell are we doing? I I mean, it's it's kind of like uh, just a joint communal. Yeah. Hey, we all like this, right? It's 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 more for the audience than us. So (laughs) I kind of tend tend to agree um, because the way I understand it, these credit sequences are largely these people's resumes. Yeah. Like what it's, it's the reason that a visual effects guy cares that he is the third tier of Mustafarian rubber lightsaber handlers is because he can then go to you know, Amazon's Lord of the Rings and say, mm-hmm. Hey, I wrangled rubber lightsabers. I can wrangle the hell out of rubber elven swords. And if and you don't believe me, go watch the credit sequence. Exactly, because yeah. this shit's all tightly regulated by unions and guilds, and this is like you can you can verify it. Bam. Yeah. I I don't. I mean, it's 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 kind of like um, I guess a, a nearest analogy is kind of like uh, flag waving as a as a stand in for a person's level of patriotism, like. Hmm. Okay. I think they have nothing like my respect for filmmakers and above the line, below the line has nothing to do with my willingness to sit through seven minutes of credits when they'll never know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't think just I'm this way, like, out of it either. like my patriotism isn't correlated by how many flags my house is festooned or my clothing is festooned with. Right. Um, sometimes I think, but, but I mean, I, I have heard many people articulate Michael's thoughts that, you know, maybe, we would be a more thoughtful or or informed uh, movie-going audience if we did sit through the credits and take an interest in all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I feel like you're already a pretty far into the into being a cinemaphile before you even start thinking of that. Because if you just told an average person to sit there and watch the credits, like, what the fuck? They don't even know what a gaffer or yeah. a grip is. Uh, yeah. let it alone like oh yeah Tommy the grip man yeah he's like a famous like it's I, I, I don't know I mean I feel like I'm arguing against the spirit of this except for I'm not like yes we should all be thankful and mm-hmm. we should all recognize how much work goes into our entertainment mm-hmm. um, I just don't know that sitting and watching the credits is uh, the best way to do that and I think honestly it's the industry's job to recognize these people more so than it is the audiences yeah like I'm not going to go see a movie because some grip worked on it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't tell me anything about the actual movie itself, other than mm-hmm. maybe the gripping is going to be real good. Right. Uh, when when I see the name of a director, someone who has overarching control of a project, mm-hmm. then I can start to evaluate the project 
solely on the name of that person. It doesn't. It just doesn't do any good. And that's otherwise. not fair because, like, yeah, the the idea that he made a good movie is all entirely dependent on standing on these people's shoulders. But that's part of his skill, right? Like, the, yeah. him and the the director and producer together pick these people. They're the ones that interview them. They're the ones that interview the people to interview them. And to the extent that they do a good job, that's how you build. Like that's why Steven Spielberg is a good producer and director because he has a very long track record of making very profitable and very uh, and and both both profitable and films of artistic merit. And he does that because he know he has a team, he has a core of people he can call on. He's got a cinematographer that he's got a relationship with, um, and all that stuff kind of snowballs into all his projects. Yeah, I, I mean, I. I... I think I feel like credits are not valuable to me as an audience member. Um, so can we talk about, there's a couple things I want to say, um, unless you had some other things you want to talk, cause there's a no. couple things I want to point out. Um, I want to do the, the, the annoying thing where I, I point out something that might, that might have people roll their eyes. But I think it was stark when I was watching this documentary, this, this documentary is so white. Mm-hmm. Like it's it, it's got to a point where I start noticing like, holy shit, there was not a single black person in this entire there's a hand. And especially the higher you go up, um, the the wider it gets like there's mm-hmm. maybe one Asian lady in the like executive producing kind of the, 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 the direction of planning thing. There's a few more Asians in the visual effects, but like it's all. And and I think like this stage you can see like Hollywood's development because there was a lot of female representation, especially in like in executive uh, type roles and department heads. Yeah, like that was fair. I thought fairly balanced, but holy shit, um, <laughs> you know that's why you know because you know, again because the lesser theory is black folks just don't know how to to make digital models or composite special effects. <laughs> they just just can't. They're incapable. I, I mean, I of think it. there's a little bit of systemic problem there too yeah but that's what i'm saying like yeah, yeah. That, that that's why like people make it a big deal for representation because yeah. it tries to help fix these problems uh so i just want to talk about that a bit and then also rick mccollum's role in the failures of the prequels oh god okay i think he went way too far like he should have been the guy pulling george aside and set several points of this and being like hey man uh we want to make a lot of money together and we've worked together a long time. And I respect you, but I, I just like, I've got some concerns because I feel like when you watch these documentaries, even this one, you can see kind of like the tight grimaces and stuff in the margins. Yeah. There's a lot of people saying this isn't working. This is a what the fuck moment. Even Steven Spielberg, when he sees the first cut of Phantom Menace is like, wow. Ah, Hmm. I I feel like Rick McCollum, especially when he heads this documentary saying it's my job to enable this man's creative vision. Like, <laughs> isn't it good? Pro- like, like, I mean, he's not when, wrong. But about when Star that, Wars though, was like, good, like it was adversarial, like every like yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. working on Star Wars thought it was stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like it made Lucas kind of compromise to get his crew and his actors on board with his vision. This he's just. I, he he's he's a he's an unquestioned dictator, and I feel like, you know, especially when it came to dialogue, my God, you you should have just handed all that off to somebody else. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I, I that's I, I you kept can on write watch- this shit, George, but you sure can't say it. Right when I saw when I saw him like at the very beginning, I'm like, yeah, you probably should have done a better job of finding people that could challenge him or 
not just enable him and prop him up, but like, you know, help him course correct to help him shore up his weaknesses and play to his strengths because that's kind of his job. I mean, George Lucas can't help but get up his own ass and, you know, think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread because that's what people have been telling him for a generation. It's it's the producer's role to kind of like rein that in and, and help keep him grounded and, and, and bring him back to reality. And I don't know. It's it's also weird that I feel like now that the generation who grew up on the prequels is like, you know, young adults themselves, there's this weird revision of what we think about the prequels. Oh, they suck. Come on. But I'm telling you. Come on, you, they fucking suck. One and two are atrocities. Number three is okay based on what they had. They're terrible. I agree with you okay but i know that's why i can't tell these like, whippersnappers just don't know what they're talking well, about well yeah i mean are, are they but 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 are we sure we knew what we why do we think that we know what we're talking about when the, the original trilogy is just because they were highly regarded when they first came out um i mean the, the opinion i don't think has changed on those yeah that's true a generation after generation we keep saying these are classic amazing right. films right uh you know if 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 it came to it and i found out oh god in the 70s everybody actually no they didn't love star wars they hated star wars right why do why do i as an 80s baby love star wars so much i'd have to start thinking about it mm-hmm. but that's it, not it is because i do think that the public's perception and like there's so many memes and playing like it's uh, people are getting affection for the prequels uh because the prequels are not the movies that stand alone they're you know general kenobi dropping down on someone and saying hello there there's mm-hmm. uh it's it's uh, i will make it legal there's like all these like this this meme culture around it that is arguably greater than the thing itself and that's what people sure. you know they have these fond memories of watching star wars and playing with star wars and playing the star wars video games and then they're having a fun time remixing it but I, I I don't know. I, I don't know how much of this stuff is just stupid meme shit and how much of people are li- literally saying, oh, no, the prequels are, are, are amazing because I just I just don't think they are. They're not. You're wrong. And in 10 years, you're going to look back and say, oh, fuck, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. Uh, thank you, Michael, for uh, having us watch this. It's an interesting way to end uh, this phase of the commission. Um you know, the the, the 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 like a completely different way of doing things is is an interesting way to kind of wrap up this this uh, this long commission thing that we've been doing. Uh, sorry, it's taken us as always a long time, and if, you know, and, and obviously for the, like the last twenty ish commissions, bulk apologies for being so late on it. Um, but there's a reason we're not, we're not doing them anymore, um, and we will have a few more commissions coming out at the result of the Bald Move Fantasy Football le- uh, Leagues working out in Jan- uh, uh, February. But also, Jim and I have kind of to replace some of the commission podcast feel we are doing the Super Serious Film Reviews. Uh, we've got one right now debuting uh, that uh, looks at uh, Nick Cage's career in a kind of a humorous... I don't, I don't know if it's humorous, like... Some of it is, some of it's not. We're doing three good Nick Cage movies, three bad Nick Cage movies, and we treat them appropriately, and we're having fun with it, And uh, because we do like talking about these movies, and we do like discovering new things about movies that we haven't seen. So we're trying to keep that up, a super serious film fest. You might want to check that out, because it's in a, a, a separate feed, and there's also a lot of uh, YouTube-type features that are, that, that, are ex- that are expanding beyond just the podcast coverage. Uh, so check that out at baldmove.com. And we will see you for some more commission movies a little bit later in the winter. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.